I'm just Lizzie today. And I'm Barbie, filling in for Alex. Yeah. So Alex had a, I think, a family obligation or a wrestling ob- obligation or something like that. So Barbie had wanted to jump in. And so now we have Barbie. So Lizzie and Barbie today. So um, this is what is from. And in this episode, we're covering from. Season one, episode four, A Rock and a Far Way. So Barbie, what, how did you feel about this episode? Yay or nay? Yay, because it really moved the story along. Um, we got some answers and in other cases, we're at least heading in a direction. So I felt like this was... Um, a really, I don't know, maybe pivotal episode might be a little too much, but um, I feel like a lot happened and and we're learning some things. Yeah, absolutely learning some things. Uh, it to me, it's been the most pivotal, pivotal, <laughs> pivotal episode since we started watching. Um, So I think this is super important. There were a lot of clues, a lot of information. I have a lot of notes that I'm looking at and it was hard to narrow it down to just five points because then, you know, the notes section, which we can do, (laughs) it could be very lengthy. (laughs) So do you want to start with your number one? Sure. My number one is kind of just a general... I feel like this is the first episode where we are given a little bit of hope and a little bit of excitement and, um, you know, there may be a way out of this for these folks. And for me, that came with the the Jade and Kenny exchange. Okay. Um, I loved when when Jade and Kenny were in that kind of underground bunker and Jade was explaining, you know, oh, I saw this crazy symbol up there. And then I saw this guy, you know, crushed by a rock, you know, dead. And he was there and, you know, just kind of showing him and and just really communicating. I mean, Jade is fully on board now. He is immersed. <laughs> he is a believer and he has seen a lot of stuff already so that was really exciting and I then, think Jade oh, oh I'm sorry no, I think no, go Jade ahead. Is finding himself in a um in an escape room that he didn't count on yeah he likes puzzle solving yeah so and you know I I was so on board with Jade being fired up and and him saying you guys aren't doing anything and and then Kenny's like why don't you come with me to the <laughs> station? Yeah. So that was really cool. You know, I was, I was kind of feeling on board with Jade, like, yeah, well, you know, you guys have just been sitting around and, you know, 
And then they get to the sheriff's station and that's when Kenny indoctrinates Jade into, you know, the realization that they come from all over the place. They were going different places and they all ended up there. And that's when their crazy, impossible predicament becomes even crazier and more impossible to Jade. Yeah. Then you hear that that static on the CB. Kenny's like, oh yeah, it does that sometimes. And you just see Jade grabbing the CB and just, you know, booking out of there. And so, you know, for me, the hope came with Jade getting all fired up and and then just taking that CB. It's like, I don't know what he's going to do with it, but I'm really excited to find out. The guy built a software company. So, uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But it was finally a note of hope. I wanted to know what you thought was hope. <laughs> But yeah, you're right. Um, agreed on that. And I'm glad you picked that as a point because I couldn't squeeze it in. Yeah. So my number one, it's kind of several things mixed together because they all have to do with one another. They all entwine. So there's this memory that the show actually, the episode actually starts with. And we don't really know what it is because it's just a little boy with his disco lunchbox coming out of that root cellar. And, um, and he sees all the dead bodies and it takes us into the latter half of the episode. And this is where I got the majority of my notes, but it takes us into the latter part of that episode before we find out what that actually is. And it has to do with the boy in white. Ethan tells Victor he's seen this little boy. And Victor says, I haven't seen him in a really long time. And I was about your age when I saw him. So, I mean, I think Ethan's like five or six years old. Does that sound right? I, don't, I, I might put him at eight-ish. I don't okay. know. Uh, he's like... In stature, he's a small yeah, kid, but he could be an eight. Um, so the last episode, we see Ethan seeing the boy in white through the window and the boy waves at him. And, you know, I, it looks innocuous. But when the boy waves at Victor later on in this episode, it just kind of raises some more questions. So we go into the sequence when Victor and Ethan are in the woods and they find the faraway tree. And Victor, you know, it's, it's kind of cute. Like he's traveling, like he has not aged from this young boy and he's got chalk in his front pocket and yes. pulls that out, draws a smiley face on a rock and drops it into the tree. And then the rock drops out of the sky, sort of. And he demonstrates what the faraway tree is. And he says, I've never seen this one before. So now we know there's more than one out there. 
And so, and he also says, you know, things end up in different places. You just never really know. He starts to hear a dog barking. And that's when he goes into this memory sequence. And we see him, we see his face, we see bodies in the street. And then we see the boy in white. I, what is that thing? A carousel? Yeah, I, I called it a merry-go-round, but I couldn't merry-go-round either. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a merry-go-round. So he's on this broken down merry-go-round. Definitely from the 60s. But anyway, mm-hmm. he's on that thing. Um, and Victor had said to Ethan, the, um, the first time he saw the boy was right before two cars came and it wasn't their two cars. It was two other cars that came and we don't, you know, we don't get any other information. Um, and he also tells Ethan that he's been there the longest um, which is a long time, obviously, because what is he like 50 ish? Yeah, like yeah, easily. Or would he be like. If he was would, 10 or so during the yeah. disco era. Yeah, which and was, has a disco lunchbox. Yeah. Then that would put him being. Yeah, he would be about my age, about 56. Because um, I was let's see, 1977 would have made me 12 and I'm 56 now. So he's about in my age range, mm-hmm. um, give or take. Uh, yeah, because it was like, all right, I have to go back and find out exactly because I knew it was late 70s, but I wasn't sure if it was attached to a, a particular year. But then I know that disco was kind of underground for a little bit before it became mainstream and everybody and they'd say it. disco died in 1979 yeah <laughs> yeah it seemed like very abrupt it was there and then it wasn't there but it was still there for some people who just weren't giving it up um so at any rate he starts hearing the dog bark then we see a uh, little victor with a dirty face then we see the dog Oh, wait a minute. I've got to go in the right, right order. The dog barking over dismembered man body. And then we see Victor with the dirty face. Then we see the bodies again. Then the little boy on the merry-go-round and there's two bodies right near him. And he Mm -hmm. smiles and waves like he's waving hello. And then we see Victor young again. So from there, Victor goes back to Colony House because he's like, it's almost like something happened that sparked his memory. Maybe when the rock fell, it just reminded him of something. You was know? it the dog barking that was the trigger? But there was no dog. But didn't it was it like it was like coming, coming out, out of the, of the tree. tree? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's what it was. I'm not sure. But it, it triggered that memory. So he goes to the colony house and he pulls out a drawing and it's the dog. So then he goes and it's the dog with the bodies and the boy looking mad who went from being on the merry-go-round to in the street. And then um, we're back at colony house and he's looking for other pictures. 
And then there's Victor looking down his street, holding his disco lunchbox. There's just one dog. There's the boy in white and then bodies all the way down the street. Mm -hmm. And it's like everybody that lived on that street was out in the out in, out there dead and dismembered and ripped apart. They and clearly didn't hear the bell. <laughs> yeah, they clearly didn't hear the bell. Maybe they didn't even know there was a bell. Right. And I'm looking at the street and all of the cars, all the vehicles are in working order and they're all in the same genre, you know, like late 60s, early 70s. Although I didn't see anything that looked like my parents' car. We had a 66 Mustang, champagne gold. Wow. Yeah. Nice. And yeah. I mean, these cars seemed much older than that, except for I think there was a Scout there. That looked like the newest. And I remember at the time, like the Buick Regals were coming out with the opera tops. Um, they had started coming out. Maybe they weren't out yet. It just seemed like all of those cars were early 70s mm -hmm. versus later 70s. But if it was a small town and it wasn't an affluent town, which looking at the houses did not look affluent. Right. Yeah. It, working class for sure. I very say. working class. Like those cars would have would make sense. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. Um, and the houses, it's not like they looked amazing, but they all did look kept. Mm -hmm. um, the playground equipment wasn't as run down as it is now. Um, I think they could have stood to mow the lawns a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so then he looks in, the boy is on the merry-go-round. And I, I can't remember now, but I know the boy was walking down the street away from him, but then the boy is on the merry-go-round, walks over, gets on the merry-go-round, waves at Victor, like waves hello, and mm -hmm. then the wave turns into follow me. Yeah. And then he disappears from the merry-go-round. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know if that was his goodbye and, you know, come this way or what that was. And the kid's clothes, I, you know, if you compare his clothes to, you know, young Victor, yeah. that kid looks like he may be from the 60s, you know, cause he just, you know, he's all in white and he's got the little shorts and a little nice shirt and just, you know, his hair is, you know, short and um, he just looks like he might be you know, more from the, the 60s compared to Victor with his hair, which is, you know, grown mm -hmm. out a little bit and, you know, lunchbox and everything. I don't know. I don't know because there's nothing he's wearing that you, I don't want to say that you might not see on a kid today, maybe not in that combination. Mm -hmm. Um. I, nothing about him seemed super dated and I think if it was the 60s the kid would have a short haircut because his parents wouldn't be having none of that you know 
except for when it gets into the 70s, kids were wearing, you know, some kids were wearing hair longer. Yeah, yeah. And, that, well, that's what I mean. Victor clearly looks like he's from the 70s, but the, yeah. the boy in white just looks so neat and crisp and, you know, with the hairstyle and everything. He just looks like maybe he's from an earlier era where, you know, kids dressed up more, their parents, you know, dressed them up and, um, you know, the kid even looked more, more affluent than maybe yeah. town would reveal. Right. He definitely did look affluent. Um, like a, almost a spoiled, pampered kid, you know, the two we see in movies shows. Um, yeah, I don't know. And maybe he's like, oh, thank goodness, another kid, finally. <laughs> maybe. And, but he yeah. doesn't even speak. He just waves. And, I know, and I know. It's like, is um, he a ghost? Is he, yeah. And, and like, if the shorts were a little bit longer, we'd probably be able to place it in the turn of the century. But they're not. Yeah. Gosh, they're not longer even, at all. I didn't even think about going back further but yeah you yeah. never know I mean maybe not that far but that raises an interesting point I can't really pinpoint that those clothes yeah seem to predate the 70s I don't know I kind of disagree I, I feel like I don't think for the most like I don't think that that would be a common look um Maybe, maybe not. If it was in colors, like I could see those shorts and a, a button-down shirt like that if they were in any other color but all white. Yeah, so yeah, all, all white is weird too. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like if you're going into symbolism, symbolism, you know, white is purity. Yeah. You know, like the first color. But he just reminds me so much of Damien. Oh. Omen, you know? Yeah. I'm waiting for someone to be on a roof saying, this is for you, Damien. Boy, that is a good point. Because I've just been, you know, just going by the white and him being so seemingly childlike and innocent, being on the merry-go-round and doing the shh to Ethan when he sees yeah. him. But yeah, there is also that side that could say he's, you know, evil. And, you know, who's to say that he's not, you know, trying to trap these, you know, young Victor and then you know what? I think if we put a sweater over his shoulders, that would be in the, in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Total prep. Yeah. That's true. So I wonder if he's kind of futuristic then if that's the case, like that, that's where it would work. If we put a sweater and tied it around his shoulders, he would totally be the eighties. I don't know. That's all I, I think all I have to say about that until something hits my mind and I'm like, Oh, I forgot to mention this, <laughs> but you know, yeah, I just thought it was interesting, you know, at the very beginning, they're showing the sequences out of order. And even 
um, victors remembering them out of order. Yeah. And I'm remembering them out of order because we see the boy just turn and walk down the street. And I can't remember how he ends up on the merry-go-round because he disappears from there. Oh, I know why. Because the dog starts running away and the dog cuts between um, the house and the playground and the boy goes in the same direction. That's how he ends up on the playground. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then um, he waves at him to go, you know, to follow him. All right. Now that that mystery is solved. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's a German shepherd looking dog. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what's your second point? Um, my second point is Jim and also Tabitha, but mainly Jim because, you know, we're getting a lot of sides of Jim in this episode. Um, yeah. You know, certainly the protective father and who could yeah. blame him. Um, right now, he is just going face value with Victor. He's a grown man <laughs> carrying around yeah. his crayon drawings. A grown even, man. Even Ethan, yeah, even Ethan kind of says, you're a grown-up. Why are you coloring in crayon? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so, you know, no one can blame Jim too much for, uh, you know, having his spidey senses going about Victor approaching his son so often. Um, but, you know, with us, you know, seeing other sides of Victor, you know, it's, it's sad. It's sad because I'm just picturing this kid in a grown man's body who's still very much a child. And this actor who's playing Victor is amazing because yeah. uh, he's really playing it, in my opinion. He is playing that dual, you know, I'm a child in, in a grown-up's body. And here's this, you know, grown-up assaulting me and kicking me out of the diner. And, you know, just the whole physicality of that and, and his facial expressions. Um, you know, so you see that part of Jim and then you see the interaction between Jim and Tabitha where she asks, are we being punished? When she, you know, is talking about Thomas. Yeah. And, you know, how... You know, clearly the baby was having trouble sleeping and Tab it sounds like Tabitha was the main, you know, caregiver, at least overnight. Um, and, you know, she was probably sleep deprived. And, you know, so it just makes me think more about, you know, this very sad, tragic accident involving Thomas, you know, and, and his death. And so and we find out a little bit because... Alex and I had been thinking Thomas was between Julie and Ethan. I know. Yes. I couldn't place where he was in the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But we find out that he was actually younger than Ethan and right. his baby. And there was Brother. an interesting uh, discovery that was announced this week regarding SIDS and may, and this could be why the baby died and why both parents are beating themselves up over it. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, they've discovered what is causing SIDS. And so it's no longer a mystery. And it's, I can't remember if it's a hormone or an enzyme, whatever it is, but there's, there's not enough of it mm -hmm. in a baby system. And it, 
it's something that keeps the baby breathing um, or striving for breath. I feel like I'm remembering it completely incorrectly because it just now, I just now connected those dots. But I think maybe Thomas died of SIDS and I don't think that it's, I, well, obviously the both of them are blaming themselves. Yeah, they're carrying so much guilt and it's clear yeah. that it has, you know, unfortunately driven a wedge between them or yep. something. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's just sad to, to even think about the possibility that this could be some kind of punishment. Right. And, but you know, I did start, it did get me wondering about the other inhabitants of this unfortunate town. Yeah. You know, just trying to test that theory. You know, could this be, you know, a punishment for for all of these people for whatever, you know, crime or not crime, you know, large or small, um, some kind of judgment placed on them? I don't know. I don't know. I it's I didn't hang on the punishment. I the problem is that I watched this in two sections. So I started it yesterday and then I had to go do something and I finished it up today. So I've got this like, you know, separation between it. But when I was watching today, there was the conversation between Father Cotri and Boyd. And I'm thinking, all right, what's up with Father Cotri? Because part of him does not seem like a regular priest. I know. Yeah. And then there's Boyd, who we know he's walking around with some significant grief because that's all he seems to express without saying it. Like it's written all over his face. Then we've got the Matthews who are definitely suffering from grief. And, yeah. and it's like, we, but the thing is, I'm placing the grief before they even get there. Yeah, because this was supposed to be their last kind of vacation as a family before. No, no, no. not start. just them, but everybody. Oh, oh, Like if this is it, like maybe if they're blaming themselves for something they think that they've done, that's why they end up there. Mm -hmm. And maybe Tabitha isn't far off the mark. Right, yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's certainly an interesting theory, um, you know, and, you know, just the other point regarding Jim and Jim and Tabitha is, you know, we learn that they were you know, on the verge of, of getting a divorce. And this was, you know, going to be the last of their, you know, family trips. And Julie knew it all along. They clearly were trying to, you know, hide it from the kids and have this just be a happy, happy little vacation. But, um, you know, Julie was perceptive enough to know what was going on and tells Tabitha in no uncertain terms that she knew. Yeah. And, you know, the heartbreaking, why aren't we enough for you? Meaning her and Ethan, you still have two children. Why aren't we enough? And I, I just feel so bad for the whole, the whole family. It's, you know, there certainly, there's a lot going on, you know, besides yeah. them being in this town, just the whole fi family dynamic. So, yeah. so that's my, my point with, you know, Jim and 
Jim and Tabitha the relationship. I just want to add a little something to that because she tells Jim that he's telling them things are going to be okay. Yeah. They're going to, um, but she thinks that they're doing something wrong and it, it brought up an interesting thought um, about Jim and it reminded me of an engineer joke and you know the punchline is like I don't need a girlfriend but a talking frog that's really cool <laughs> and um, engineers are problem solvers that's what they do and they and it feels to me like engineers always solve the problem you know, because that's just how their brains work. And so when he's telling her, everything's going to be okay, we're going to be fine, don't worry about it. He's convinced he's going to find an answer. And yeah. they're going to get out of there. His logical side tells tells him there's got to be some solution. I just yeah. haven't looked enough or worked hard enough on it. Yeah, it, it's gonna, you know, it will present itself. Somehow, it's going to present itself. And you know, I, I think that's the difference between engineers and the rest of the world, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I think that that particular thing and Jade being a problem solver. Right. I think, and it makes me wonder, I mean, Jade seems to be like on a glory tour constantly like he is about experiencing life and maybe he's just been looking at life as one big escape room and he's just he's trying to solve a problem but you know psychologically there's an inner problem that he needs to solve mm -hmm. that he's not dealing with so it's interesting that two engineers landed at the same time and I'd like to know the two cars. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time. Yeah. And I'd like to know what the rest of them did before they got there. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my further note. Um, and are we ready for my number three? We are. Okay. So I'm going to go back and talk about, uh, Boyd and father Cotri. Yes. And when I was watching their exchange at the box, it reminded me of the light and the dark men from Lost. And, you know, at the time, I'm assuming you watched Lost. I did not. I'm the one person. I knew you in were going to say that. <laughs> well, Alex didn't see that. it either, I think. Um, All right. So. In Lost, there were like several seasons in, we see um, a guy all dressed in white and then there's a guy all dressed in black. And a lot of us assumed it was God and the devil, you know, but maybe it's just the yin and the yang, that sort of thing, light and dark, like total opposites, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at Boyd and Katri and I'm thinking that they represent light and dark but I'm not sure which one is light, which one is dark, or even if they remain all that all the time. Right. I'm sort of thinking they might switch off. Although right now 
I don't know what it is about Father Country. I'm just thinking he's dark. Mm-hmm. That there's just something about him. He's certainly not clear cut. That's for sure. He is not yeah. the one dimensional clergy member that, you know, you'll often see in yeah. those. Yeah, he's definitely got sides and facets. He's got an edge. Yeah. But he tells, you know, Boyd is out there and he's, you know, fixing up the box again, hopefully never to be used a second time. But in, in, and it's like, this is Boyd's penance, his self-imposed penance that he's got to do this. Like he put Frank in the box or he laid down the gauntlet that if anyone broke the rule, yeah. they'd end yeah. up in the box. And then Frank broke the rules and he actually had to carry it through. So now he's getting the box ready again. And Father Cadre comes over and he's talking to him and he's trying to absolve Boyd from holding on to the guilt of Lauren, Frank, and Megan. And Boyd doesn't want to hear it. He's just like, you know, this place is just horrific and he just doesn't want to hear it. And Katri says, look, you are the one that found the talismans. Before you came along, there was death all the time. Mm-hmm. Because you found the talismans, which the 96 days makes me think that that was fairly recent, which then makes me wonder how long Boyd has been there. Like maybe he hasn't been there very long. Yeah, I'd love to know when when everyone arrived. I'd love yeah. the timeline. Yeah, I hope they do that. Um, so he's, he says, you're the one that found the talisman. You created order from chaos. You made it possible for people to live and not just survive. You saved this town. And he says to Boyd, you don't have the luxury of grief. And that's when I started thinking about the grief thing. So he starts talking to Boyd about, you know, he's not responsible for her, whoever her is. So he's not responsible for her, which I'm assuming is someone that died. So, but he's definitely carrying around a very, very heavy bucket of guilt about someone. Like it weighs on him. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the estrangement with Ellis. Yeah. What's going on with that? I mean, yeah. Everyone's looking to Boyd, you know, to make the hard decisions and Boyd's carrying his own, uh, you know, problems yeah yeah. and and it's like this is his penance is to carry the weight of this town i don't think that well i mean i don't know this sort of gets into future episodes but i don't know again i think he's another problem solver Mm -hmm. i don't know that he was like, oh, if we find some talismans, we'll be good to go. I don't think that was it. You know, I just think that he got lucky, um, but he's definitely a problem solver. The box demonstrates problem solving. Yeah. And 
you know, unfortunate pop problem solving at that. So um, that's my number three. Well, for my next point, we're shifting back to Victor. Okay. Um, his stash of drawings, when he's, you mentioned, you know, he goes back, you know, and goes through the drawings and, and you know, hits upon the, the drawing of the dog. Yeah. I froze on the first two drawings just because I was curious. Um, yeah. You know, my first watch, I just watched and, you know, and then the second time I thought, what are those other drawings of? Because it goes by so fast. And I just right. wondered if there was any significance. So the first one looks, it looks definitely like Ethan, in my opinion. It looks like a little boy in a yellow shirt and it looks like he's waving. And I couldn't really see the person who was next to him in this uh -huh. drawing, but it, it looked like a girl and I'm guessing it was Julie. So a drawing of Ethan and Julie, they are in a yard, there's a house in the background and it's dark. But the odd thing is it's dark, moon is out, but these two kids are smiling and Ethan's waving. So that I found really interesting. But I wonder if they are monsters. Right. I don't know. Because that's, I don't know. that's kind of what they do too. Yeah. And then the second drawing is of a house on fire and figures like stick figures in black are all around. And I was wondering, is Colony House going to experience a fire? I mean, there were significant flames in, you know, all around the house. Yeah. You, those figures didn't look like they were running. So I wondered if they were the monsters surrounding a burning Colony House. It was a yeah. large house for sure. And it well, didn't look like one of the, the houses in town. Yeah. So... It'll be interesting to see future episodes if if there's a fire and if it, I don't know, forces people to, to run out and maybe they're attacked. I don't know. Um, and then the third, of course, is the picture of the dog, which, you know, ends up prompting that flashback and yeah. you know, see the bodies. So. Yeah. Well, um, I think there's a bit of foreboding there because the episode ends with him saying, I'm going to get ahead of this or whatever he said to that effect. He was digging graves and he was doing it up at Colony House. And did that remind you of anything? Yes, it did. <laughs> Hello, Jim from The Walking Dead. Exactly. Oh my gosh. I got chills, like yeah. double chills because of I that. I was like, all right, so maybe there's some blue meth involved. I don't know. And there were six. So that's that's a lot of graves. That's <laughs> so, a lot of graves. And, and we I don't have a very how big many cast, so I'm nervous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so there's that. Yeah. I think that I know I finally went back um, and it was for episode two. I watched the, the um, opening credits and I made notes of all the drawings. And at that point, I didn't know what the drawings were all about. And later in the episode found out it was Victor, you know, um, 
but some of those drawings that he was flipping through are in the opening credit. Yeah, is, is the picture of, I, I'm guessing that Ellis did this one because it looks like Ellis and Fatima holding hands. And oh yeah, that was her behind Julie's bed nook, yeah. which is odd. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she's got a little nook in Ellis and Fatima's room. Um, yeah. And so I, it's in a very kind of Grandma Moses, you know, very basic style. It could either be, you know, an artist rendering or Victor. Uh, it looked more. No, it's not Victor. This is Ellis's work. And it just looks different from those charcoal sketches that he did yeah. with Fatima. Um, yeah. It, or, well, I. It's not Victor that much. Yeah, it is definitely more stylized, but yeah. it was just interesting because it was kind of in the same, I don't know, style. Um, That's a no. I, I mean, Alex and I called it, you know, Adam and Eve, mm -hmm. you know, in the garden of good and evil. So that's what we were looking at. And that could have been. I don't know. Maybe he was experimenting. Maybe he yeah. just felt um, maybe something had happened. Mm -hmm. And it was obviously after Fatima. Or maybe it wasn't. Maybe the drawing foretold Fatima right. showing up. Although, do we know? Yeah, it was, well, we don't know if Fatima came before or after him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The timeline at some point, they've got to reveal that it's got to yeah. have some significance. But yeah. long story short with, you know, Victor, you know, in his room, you can see there are, you know, a ton of his drawings hanging up all over his room. And then, you know, a ton like stuffed in the drawer that he rifles through. So it's, it seems like all this time, all these years, Victor has been making these drawings thinking that he was drawing things that he dreamt and he's starting now to remember and he's starting to come to grips with the fact that you know what that was real the boy in white real the dog real so that's that he didn't think that these things weren't real i think like he might have drawn them and moved on like almost making like making diary notes well at the beginning of the the show he says um something like i think i'm starting to remember things things yeah. that i thought were dreams oh okay does he say to julie because he, he draws a picture of poor julie who's alarmed but at least takes it yeah <laughs> and and he he says something like do you ever think that you know something that happened to you is really a dream or i forget exactly how he kind of introduced it yeah. Um, but he reveals to her that things that he thought were dreams, he's starting to remember were actually real. And then when they see, when he and Ethan see the boy in white, or no, when he shows Ethan a picture of the boy in white and says, is that who you saw? And Ethan confirms it. Then Victor says, and this is when they're in the diner and Victor says, then he's real. So this is all you know, this second um, event where there's two cars again yeah. um, is just churning all this stuff up for, for Victor. 
And I'd love to know what the significance is of two cars. <laughs> yeah. Because stuff went down the first time two cars, uh, you know, made an appearance all those decades ago. Well, and now we've got this going I'm on. I'm wondering, though, like, if, because he said that he saw the boy before the two cars. And maybe the boy was a harbinger of some sort. And mm. then the two cars were like the horsemen that came in and brought pestilence. Well, yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and whatever was in those cars, that's what started this whole thing. Because so far, the monsters that we've seen are very dated, but they're not predating like the late 50s, early 60s. Right, yeah. So, and you know how it is, like sometimes it can take a while for styles to phase out. Yes. So, you know, you- I still could, like I'm dressed in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I, well, I'm still wearing the same things that I was wearing when I was two and three years old. <laughs> You know, Jean Capri's in a t-shirt and Mary Jane's, and I'm happy. You know, <laughs> yeah. That ain't broke. If, but, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like even like when we were younger and we looked at, looked at pictures of people in their 50s and 60s and 70s, and we're like, man, they're old, you know? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you look around, you don't see anyone looking like that now. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, we all, in a, as aside from obvious age, we all kind of look the same. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just that it could have been like, you know, the milkman had a uniform that lasted for a long time. I remember the milkman at my house dressed like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, his hat, his hat wasn't as pointy, but he was dressed all in white. Yeah. So. Could it be that these monsters are selecting human forms that they think people will think are innocuous? It like maybe that creature, you know, isn't inhabiting the body of a man from you know, the 50s or 60s, a milkman from the 50s or 60s, but he selected an appearance that looks like a friendly milkman to, you know, trap somebody, you know, maybe an older person or, you know, even a younger person who associates, oh, that's a kindly milkman. I'm going to let him into my house. And then boom. Yeah. I don't know. Every, they all look innocent. They you know, do. there's a bride, I think. They come up looking friendly, you know, yeah. remember that from the porch. The old guy in the pea coat that you mentioned last yeah. episode. Yeah. And like, um, even when they went after Frank, they didn't look like that. Mm -hmm. Yes, they didn't look that's like right. that at all. Yeah. And like, there was like, there was one guy that was, and I think I remember seeing him at the camper but there was one guy that was looking through a slat in the box and he just kind of, I don't know, 
he just reminded me of like a bar guy, um, like a guy maybe in his thirties or something. And, mm-hmm. you know, just a smoker or like, you know, just some guy that hung out in a bar all the time, mm-hmm. you know, looking in, um, certainly like if I was out and about and this guy was looking at me, I, I wouldn't feel good about it, you know? Yeah. Um, and he was like seventies for sure. Um, or even late sixties, but, or maybe the people that they kill, they can adopt. Like if they ingest that flesh, they can adopt that look. Right, Which, that's what I was originally thinking. And, and it's still the guy the theory that I'm thinking about. But um, yeah, I, I want to know more about that too. There's so many questions. Mm-hmm. It's like a chicken egg thing. Yeah, exactly. Because there's like the guy that was mesmerizing Julie. Yeah. Like yeah. he was from the 90s. Yes, he did. Yeah. And we haven't seen anyone that modern looking, but it was like he was out front on purpose Mm -hmm. because she might find him attractive. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, So that was number four, right? Yep. (laughs) All right. So my number five are the locations. And I just wanted to make note of this. Uh, so when Kenny and Jade are in the police station, they've got the map with all the push pins and Kenny is explaining to him. The one thing they have in common is that none of them were in the same area. They were all going someplace else and they were someplace else when they saw the tree. So Jade and Toby were in central Florida when they found the tree. Mm-hmm. then Kenny and his family were in Austin, Texas. The Matthews or the Matthews family were in Arizona. Christy was in Detroit. But the thing is, we're only seeing locations in the United States. Yeah. It was only a map of the United States. So Though that just tells me that they don't have a license plate from anywhere else but the United States. Because mm-hmm. they could have had Canadian plates. I'm thinking right now, I've seen European plates, but we don't see them a lot. And there's always like the European plate will be on the front of the car. And then the state, our local, whatever local state plate will be on the back of the car. So they have to have that car registered here, but Canadian plates, you know, I'm growing, well, spending most of my life in the Northeast. I, I, and then again, in Florida, um, I would see a lot of Canadian plates and they wouldn't have to be registered here. Yeah. But we're not seeing any Canadian plates in this show. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if it's something expressly um, happening in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Or maybe there's other centers throughout the world. 
if they do yeah, that yeah. second season, I'm going to be pissed because I'm like, no, don't involve more. We haven't right. put out yet. So or we're going to have more people arriving, maybe. Yeah. Uh, from outside the U.S. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, we have to have someone come after the Matthews. Right. Um, yeah. and, and Toby and Jade. Someone else has to show up. And we have to see how the Matthews um, react to that. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Do you have y'all number five, Bretty? I do. Um, it is Sarah. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. We can't not talk that about complex Sarah. character who you know, just, she seems like a kindergarten teacher one moment, just super sweet and innocent and lovely. And then, you know, the next she's, you know, opening doors and getting people killed. And then this horrible (laughs) message on her arm, kill the boy. Yeah. Um, You know, and does kill the boy mean Ethan? Um, I wondered if kill the boy could mean uh, the boy in white, although the boy in white seems to already be dead, but. Well, we don't know, but we don't know that she's seen the boy. So the only boy to her would be Ethan. Ethan. But the thing that got me is that she's over in the corner on the counter and she's like, oh, 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 and no one notices. I know, I know. Until she collapses. Yeah, yeah, that I feel so bad for her. I don't know how to feel about her, but I in that in that scene, I totally felt, you know, she's clearly terrified. It's not like aha, another message, you know. She's really freaked out, collapses and goes into this, you know, these convulsions. Um, you know, almost like possession. So that's that is very interesting. Um It'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens next with her and Ethan or, you know, whoever. Um, But yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, sometimes I feel sorry for her and then other times I'll be like, oh, what is with you? (laughs) You know, why are they communicating with you? What is going on? Um, Why why does she seem to be a conduit or, I don't know. So, Sarah. Very interesting. Hey, Sarah. Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So I'm going to jump into our note, not our notes, but what we know about um, things so far. So we didn't have many notes about the monsters. I only got one, which was they don't leave much on the bone. Um, That's the only thing we seem to have learned about them this week other than they're prolific eaters they can take down a town in the night yeah and they seem to go for the gut and the legs yeah uh, not the face but yeah. it's interesting because when donna and her sister ran into them isn't that where they started with donna's sister was the face yeah yeah but i haven't seen any bodies yet that are faceless they the faces seem intact but they're just gutted and also you know legs seem to be chewed um or they'll you know they've 
they've gone December, so much that they're in two pieces yeah yeah like Megan's mom yeah in that guy that yeah. was that we were first seeing that the dog was barking over yeah um, all right so then um if we switch over to the town so somehow static hits that place on the radio sometimes mm -hmm. it's been an ongoing thing and no one has really bothered to try and delve in deeply about that mm -hmm. so then we have the root cellar um which is part of the town and jade finds it in the previous episode and it's got a dead guy in there and a symbol and then little Victor comes out of there and it kind of, I was thinking, all right, so maybe this is a safe space, but if that's true, then we wouldn't have seen that dead guy in there, but then we don't really know if that dead guy was really there because it seems like Jade was seeing things. And although this isn't part of the, I don't know that this is part of the town, but it's definitely part of the woods are the faraway trees mm -hmm. and they can transport people and things and the last thing is the star magic motel um and then colony house we've got a couple of characters up there and one of them is trudy and she's kind yes. of like this busybody girl and she has a pillow named meredith that <laughs> somehow uh julie was borrowing but that's okay because Trudy went through uh, Julie's uh, luggage and pulled out a sweater. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, or not, not a sweater. She's got Julie's shirt she's wearing. Mm -hmm. And um, I think she's just trying to stay a little trendy and maybe not wear the same thing twice. Um, so we've got Trudy, the prolific sharer, and then we've got the girl that can't act that we've met up there um, <laughs> and that's all I have for those things do you have any notes um, I do it's um pertaining to music um and yeah. specifically the jukebox yeah um when I think it's Ethan and Jim arrive at the diner for breakfast um the jukebox fires up and starts playing last train to Clarksville by yeah. the monkeys and uh you know i i like that song and again first watch i you know i was just nearly freaked out that the jukebox started on its own number yeah. one and number two uh the townspeople kind of seem to you know slough that off be old you know oh yeah that sometimes happens but that's that's just like the static thing happening exactly and then i thought well, what's the significance of this song? Maybe there's some kind of message being delivered. So I kind of delved, I did a deep dive into Last Train to Clarksville. And um, I, I looked up the lyrics, just did a skim. And the one line that jumped out at me was, and I don't know if I'm ever coming home. Yeah. So that kind of gave me chills. And then I thought, well, what is this song about? Because it sounds so upbeat. But then when you read the lyrics and you really listen, it's like, it's not that upbeat. So um, I read that according to the songwriters who are Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart, 
It tells the story of a young man who's been drafted during the Vietnam War and wants one more night with his sweetheart. So he's telling her, take, take the last train to Clarksville. I'll meet you at the station. I made your reservation. Um, and so it got me wondering, okay, is it that these people have been drafted into a war with these monsters um, and they may never make it home? Was that the, the underlying message maybe or the significance of this song being played? Um, and then I remembered what you guys were talking about last episode. I think Greg brought it up that um, you know, the reason for the food, the pancakes, the chicken eggs, and just, you know, all of that being very plentiful, oddly enough, is because this is some kind of farm, and these monsters are just, you know, keeping everybody healthy and fattened up and complacent, so, you know, they can pick them off. And anyway, it just got me thinking, like, what, what is this, you know? Um, are they... Are they, you know, just, you know, farm animals, kind of, or have they been drafted into this, you know, war between them and the monsters? Who's going to win? Um, so, anyway, just, you know, that that kind of was an interesting little side note. Um, and then the other song was, um, I think it was by Joni Mitchell, Blue. Um, called Blue. And I did another, you know, look at lyrics and, you know, again, the lyric that jumped out at me the most was everybody's saying hell's the hippest way to go. Well, I don't think so, but I'm going to take a look around it though. Blue, I love you. So, you know, just, just interesting, you know, it, if you read all of the lyrics, it's a love song, but it's kind of a conflicted, um, you know, it, you know, they're definitely Joni Mitchell who wrote the song. Um, you know, if it's autobiographical, she was definitely separated from whoever she's writing this about. It's definitely about lovers who are apart. And I just found it, you know, the line, I'm going to take a look around it, though. Um, well, that song comes on. Are they taking a look around hell? That well, song comes on. I'm sorry. The equivalent of hell? Yeah. And that song comes on while Jim and Tabitha are at the restaurant and it's just them sitting at the table. Yeah. yeah. Are they with Boyd it, at that point or is it before Boyd is there? Boyd got pulled out of the restaurant by Kenny. And okay. um, that's right. Sarah, then, yeah, Sarah pulled Ethan out of the booth to help her serve food. So Jim and Tabitha are sitting at the table along alone when this song comes on, and mm -hmm. you know she says, um, so she just says that summer in Texas. Then Jim apologizes and says he feels broken. Mm -hmm. which, you know, this is an engineer that can't solve a problem that's broken. And then Tabitha 
you know, they, they, they're talking all around the divorce and Tabitha, Tabitha says, we're going to solve this problem together. So it's, it sounds to me like the divorce may be off. And Another that, note of hope. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. yeah. And that, um, you know, maybe this is a pause, you know, because mm -hmm. they did, you know, they've been looking around hell ever since their child died. Yeah. You know, like both of them are broken because they've lost this child and, you know, they're beating themselves to death over it while Julie's saying, hey, there's still two of us left. And when Julie said that, you know, I don't know if everyone knows a family that's lost a child or not, but I've known a couple and, you know, from the kid's point of view, like they feel like it, it changes the fam, like the relationship dynamic because the kid is like, I'm still here. And the parents yeah. are so distraught over the child that they lost that they don't know. It's not that the ones that remain are any less important or any less loved. It's just that the parent is consumed yeah. with the child that they lost. Yeah, the absence. Yeah, and, and you know, how they're dealing with that. You know, if they are dealing with extreme guilt that they could have done something. Um, I know, you know, I... I lost my dog once and it's like, I go over that day over and over and over again, thinking I could have done something different. So in an accident. Yeah. He was hit by a car. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, you know, while I'm sitting there watching it and I'm just like, you know, and I just think about that every so yeah, often, like, of course. you know, what could I, I know what I could have done differently and why didn't I, and you know, like, you know it, it's just things like that yeah um a note that I had was shoot I I was definitely going to mention that conversation between Tabitha and Jim um and then Ethan with the crutch I was like he is just tiny Tim <laughs> I know but I know um so wait a minute, the last train to Clarksville started playing when Mrs. Lou was crying. And then another song was, we got to get out of this place. And so between those three songs, I went and looked at the dates they were released. So mm -hmm. we got to get out of this place was 65. Mm -hmm. The last train to Car Clarksville was 66. Blue was 71. Yeah. So these may be time markers. Yeah. Help us figure out when, when this possibly could have started when, you know, new things stopped. Well, not new things, but um, because every time a car comes in, there's new things, but when this town started standing still, mm -hmm. I yeah. think that is a pretty good clue. Um, let's see. Oh, my other note is, uh, Fatima and Julie and Fatima explains when you do the laundry, you get to choose 
things first before everyone else gets their hands <laughs> on them. So that's the upside to doing laundry. <laughs> um, do you have any other notes? Well, it's not so much a note, it's a question. Okay. The, um, the, the trees, I think at some point, Victor mentions to Ethan that they're getting closer. And I think he said like four inches. Um, I made a note of it that I can't find it. Yeah. Um, but it but is he four said, inches. whatever it is, he said, it's bad. And so I, I would love to just understand, you know, why, why are the woods moving? Are they getting bigger? Is this, you know, the hunting ground overtaking little bit by little bit? town and colony house um yeah it does it kind of ebb and flow um i don't know i just found that that observation very interesting you usually don't think about you know woods moving <laughs> in any direction um so that was just you know a question that you know hopefully will be answered in a future episode well i have thought about woods moving you know out in a scientific way you mm -hmm. know um landscapes change but my question would be is he measuring the same trees or is he measuring the closest tree um mm -hmm. it kind of seemed well it seemed like he was measuring the same trees but he might have been measuring the closest tree Mm -hmm. And that they've moved up closer by four inches, like the their their safe area, uh, meaning the houses and where they roam around during the day, is getting smaller. Like the trap is getting smaller, and it goes back to what Kenny was saying that there's only so many places that we can go on the board. Right. So that's the only thing I can say about mm -hmm. that. Um, something that I thought was pretty significant and quite poignant was, you know, um, Boyd saying to Jim, look, we need to get to know each other. I think that would be a good idea. Mm -hmm. So they decide to have dinner together at the diner, but Boyd's getting ready, you know, for his you know, big night out and oh, he's yeah. trimming his beard and he's looking in the mirror and he starts buttoning up his shirt. And I'm thinking he should have ironed that. Um, <laughs> but he looks in the mirror and he just screams. Yeah. And it's fear and anguish and sadness and the, I don't know what to do. Yeah. And I'm trapped here and guilt and grief and everything was coming out all mm -hmm. in that one scream. Yeah. And then as quick as it happens, he switches gears back to, you know, the leader and, you yeah. know, ready to meet the family and, and chat. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah that was very to. revealing. That was him letting off steam because he's got so much pressure on him. And yeah. he's got to look strong. He feels all of that pressure of leadership. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a lot. And it makes me wonder, well, I kind of think he showed up and took over leadership just by his actions. Not saying I'm the leader here anymore, but just by him 
and the way he is, you know, how some people are just natural leaders and yeah. they show up and they just start getting things done and people start looking to them. Yeah. And another note is when Jim and Tabitha are out in the woods and they're looking for Ethan and the shepherds start yeah. closing in on them. And that's when Victor shows up with Ethan and shoots into the air and the dogs run away. And there's Jim's like, I've already told you to stay away from my kid. And here you are. In the woods. <laughs> like, you know, Jim knows that, you know, people do things to kids, but Victor is still a kid. He mm-hmm. doesn't know that people do stuff to kids. Like he's not even thinking about Ethan that way, but you know, Jim isn't going to let something happen to another one of his kids. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and Tabitha so, has to remind him he's got a gun. Yeah, he's got a gun. He can kill <laughs> any one of us. Uh, there's at least one bullet, bullet. We don't know if there's more, but <laughs> the fact that that happens, that's what um, gives birth to the dinner invitation from Boyd because Jim's like, Hey, He's got a gun in his lunchbox. I wondered what was in that lunchbox too. And we got our answer. Yeah. 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 We don't know that it's just the gun. You know, it could be other things, but um, he's definitely got that gun. And it would give a good reason why he's taking that lunchbox with him everywhere. And, you know, he comes out of the root cellar with that gun. Yeah. Um, Okay. Let's see. I think that's all I really have for notes. I do have one more question and then I'll stop. (laughs) When when Victor introduces Ethan to the faraway tree concept by throwing, you know, the rock and then it comes out, you know, it falls from the sky essentially uh, behind them. He says it works for people too. Yeah, he mentions you just, you know, you never know where you're going to end up or whatever. Um, How does he know that? That's what I would love to know. It sounds like he's speaking from either experience or observation. I wonder if he's jumped in there himself. Right. Yeah. And was just lucky enough to land, you know, lucky is relative, I guess, (laughs) but not too far away. Um, Yeah. Because, I I mean, if one of those came up while they were under attack, someone could jump in there and they don't know, you know, like maybe once or twice and maybe they've never come back or maybe they've showed up in other parts of the town. Well, I wondered about the root cellar guy because he's in kind of an odd place. Yeah, under a rock, under Indiana Jones rock there. Yes. Yeah, no kidding. Um, Yeah, I just, my mind went there. Like, you know, did that guy try it? And I don't know what happened, but um, so anyway, just throwing that out there. And that is truly my last note. (laughs) All right. All right. So, gosh, there was a lot. Um, there was just so much to digest in this, this episode. Um, but I think it gives us a lot going forward. So on to news from the sheriff. Um, there's David Alpay, who uh, plays Jade. In the darkest corners of the dark net, there are places where victims are held captive, psychologically tortured, 
live streamed, then given a chance to escape if they confess their worst sins, preserving them online for eternity in red rooms. Well, so whatever that is, it's called red room. Wow. Uh, and, you know, red room is backwards, is murder backwards. So, of course, not spelled that way, but that kind of sounds a little bit like from. Yeah. So what's Chloe up to? Um, Chloe Van Lanschute, who plays Christy in From, is in Skin, which was made in 2022. She plays Rachel Harris, a confident yet arrogant exotic dancer whose sudden diagnosis with muscular dystrophy changes the course of her life. Her best friend Lisa takes her to a comedy club in an attempt to cheer her up. Rachel resists, but ends up finding inspiration to get back on stage, but this time as a comedian. Rachel turns to stand-up comedy to share her experience with muscular dystrophy and cope with her disease. She tours her act with Lisa and grows into a confident comedian. As Rachel's reputation as a comic rises, so does the progression of her muscular dystrophy. Oh, wow. Yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. All right, so now for listener buzz. Um, we have something from Karen Stoll Medeiros. And she says, I am so happy you guys are covering from. And I love all the little detail you're getting to in your podcast. I appreciate that she appreciates that. Yes, here <laughs> The episode was great because we finally get some answers. Oh, Carrie, just wait until this episode four, <laughs> which of <laughs> course lead to more questions. And I have lots of questions. Just hope I get this post in before Boyd rings the bell. Here are some of them to possibly include in your list of mysteries, starting with the town and the woods. Yes, and I love that she is giving us um, some stuff. So what's up with the jukebox at the diner that turns on randomly and plays music? And so she lists, we got to get out of this place, last train to Clarksville and Blue. And I think... I'm trying to think it's on the tip, tip of my tongue, but you know, um, maybe like on a bad Wi-Fi day and stuff happens, um, like your, your Wi-Fi is up, Wi-Fi is down, Wi-Fi is up, Wi-Fi is down. It's kind of like that or the radio mm -hmm. getting um, some static there or some reception in that. And also maybe the jukeboxes just coming on randomly and I'm wondering if there's other things like that that also might be happening mm -hmm. so how often do people come to from how many people live there I don't know why are trees moving monsters and other non-monster related questions the boy in white appears during the day so not a monster for some reason I think I remember seeing him at night but I could be mistaken and why is he seemingly protecting, protecting Ethan while Sarah is being told to kill him? Maybe Ethan is the new Victor because Victor seemed to survive the massacres in his town. Mm -hmm. And he saw the boy. Yeah. And now Ethan's seeing the boy. So maybe everyone else is up for grabs except for Ethan. Maybe it's, mm -hmm. it takes a young boy because remember Victor says, I was about your age. Yeah. Yeah. So Ethan and Sarah 
both get seizures. What about Victor? Ethan was having a seizure, seizure because he was injured. Sarah was having a seizure because, seizure because they were interacting with her. And speaking of Victor, how has he survived so long? Do the monsters not want to kill him or are they unable to kill him? Maybe he just tastes funny. What happens to the people that die and from? Do they become monsters or something else? And finally, why don't people just board up all the damn windows? I understand. I would, you know, looking forward to your podcast on this episode and can't wait to get to a certain future. Oh, I wonder which episodes. All right. So Greg Schwamm says, okay, here we go. Starting to see some of the crazy mysteries that make up this place. Number one, Chekhov's traveling tree. We should see the last, see at least one person go through one of these trees by the end of the season. If yeah, not more. it would be great. Yep. In a flashback, perhaps, but I imagine we will see one successful and one less so. Oof. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to see anything not be successful. <laughs> uh, things are bad enough. Number two, these things that just happened, specifically the diner radios and the CB, which isn't necessarily plugged in. They just turn on without power. Speaking of, where do they get their electricity? If this place exists outside of the rules of space, how do they get power for all their homes and buildings? Or do they only have kerosene and some replacement? I don't remember. Or is this like the food thing? That (laughs) will just keep them complacent and give them electricity at night? All the comforts of home, so to speak. Well, no one's watching TV and there isn't internet. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Number three, Boyd found the talismans. Is he a secret agent for the monsters? Adding to the town is a farm theory from last week, could he be a monster, Thanos, that and have the foresight that they were eating everything all the time? I feel like this is a stretch, but the meat farm seems like it could make sense. Oof. And I don't really want to think that theory, but it does make sense. We keep coming back to it, whether we want yep. or not. <laughs> I think people like it. And number four. Jim has an anger problem. All right, so we don't know if Jim's anger problem is caused from grief or this is just how he handles everything. Could he have been part of the manner in which Thomas died? I can understand a little bit protecting your child, but you are a newcomer to town and you are going to bodily throw the longest tenured resident out of the diner. Well, we don't know at that time that he's the longest um resident there but then again they're in this weird place i don't know i don't think that that's an anger problem i think that's i'm gonna watch out for my kid problem um i know the guy is weird but this is a tight-knit community albeit by necessity and i think that's key albeit by necessity because they don't all like each other and he looks forward to all of our thoughts Uh, i hope they were worth looking forward to All right. Do you have any final thoughts there, Barbie? No, I am just, I am loving this show. And the episodes for me always seem to end so quickly. It's like, are you kidding? I know, like all of a sudden it's there, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So looking forward to the next episode for sure. Yeah, me too. And the thing is, I know I've seen them all, but part of this 
a large part of this is like I'm looking at it for the first time. I'm looking at it in such in depth. So I am really, really enjoying this um, rewatch. All right. So Barbie, um, thanks so much for joining us and uh, stepping in for Alex. I really, really appreciate it. And I know that Alex does as well. If you like the podcast, please hit subscribe and give us five stars. Also, if you want to write in or leave us a message, you can find all our contact information at podcastkadoka.com. I butchered that, but you know what it is. Yeah, exactly. I don't know why for a while. I mean, that's really such a great word, podcastica. It just yes. took me a while to be able to say that for some reason. Um <laughs> Before I say goodbye, I just want ha- I just have one announcement. So um, I write a couple of uh, book series, and one of them I'm releasing book four on the 25th, which is in three days, and I'm really Gosh. excited. So my series was influenced by The Walking Dead, one particular character. And it's called Lizzie's Lost Girls, and it's available on Amazon in um, paperback and, of course, ebook, which if you have Kindle Unlimited, it is part of that. So you can read that for free or part of your subscription. If you're interested in a new series, book four comes out on the 25th. And it's that Lizzie's is Lost awesome. Girls. I did not know you were an author. I'm going to check that out. Oh, I so appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, do you have Kindle Unlimited? Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's part of your subscription. So mm-hmm. you can put it on your list. Oh, awesome. I'll do that. And congratulations on the fourth well, Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. Now it's on to, I finished pick book four for that. And I've got to finish the fourth volume for my other series, which is called, um, oh, my God, what is it called? <laughs> Salem. <laughs> oh my God. Witch hunters. Salem. I can't oh. believe. I can't believe I forgot the name of that. <laughs> what a loser. Anyway. So, um, that's the next project. So, <laughs> yeah. So everyone, Hey, thanks so much for coming along on this ride while you are, um, hitting the subscribe button, please, or visiting podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, I could say, I'm sorry, I did that. (laughs) So while you're there visiting that, why don't you check out the other shows? I'm trying to remember they are covering right now Ozark, which is an awesome Netflix show. And if you haven't been watching it, they have finished the series. Although I've I've heard that, you know, from right from the beginning, I was hearing that they were going to do a spinoff, but now I'm hearing a possible fifth season. He's still my heart, but I, I feel like they still have a lot of story to tell there. So Barbie. Yes. You're up. So next week we will be covering season one, episode five called Silhouettes. Oh. Interesting title. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that makes me think. All right. So that's our show. Thank you for listening. The bell is ringing. So it's time to go home before it gets too dark.